Um, okay, we are now doing our final shiur on Masachet Kiddushin. This is going to really operate as something of a siyum. Uh, and we're going to tackle a topic uh, that we haven't tackled before. And it is one that is, um, for the most part, in the realm of Agadah. The truth is that we could have 30 pages of Mikorot for this and it wouldn't cover more than the tip of the iceberg, but we're going to have to suffice with what we've got. Uh, our main focal point is, as you could see, the Mishnayot that, that are at the end of the parak, And whether or not they're really Mishnayot is going to be a little bit of a question. But the topic we're going to deal with is the Avot and their allegiance and awareness of and allegiance to the laws of the Torah. All right, and so I'm going to start off with a passage which shows up in several places in Shas, perhaps most famously in the Agadot of Matan Torah in uh, in the ninth parak of Shabbat. Source number one. And this is a famous Midrashic trope, is that first of all, when Moshe went up to Har Sinai, he went a little further than Har Sinai, he went up to Shamayim. And that there were in a, a series of or a range of debates or disputes between Moshe and the Malachim about where the Torah belongs. Does it belong on earth or does it belong in heaven? Uh, and one of those Agadot is as follows. Amru Malachim said to Hashem, Ma liyelud isha benenu. What is a human mortal born of a woman doing among us? Amar lehem the kabel Torah He's here to get the Torah. Amru lefanav. So the malachim said is their argument for keeping the Torah in heaven. And by the way, malachim arguing with God is by the way it's a, itself a problem. What that means, I don't know. In any case, the the point of the argument was in this case chamuda genuza. This treasure that's been hidden. That for 974 generations before the world was created, this treasure has been hidden with you. In other words, now it's a thousand generations because Moshe, in, in, based on Bereshit and Shemot, is the 26th generation of humanity. You want to give this treasure to a human being? And they quote the Pasuk from Tehillim. Now, an interesting thing about that parak of Tehillim, it's a very famous parak of Tehillim, parak Het, chapter 8, which um, part of its fame is the fact that uh, Neil Armstrong in, um, in, I guess, Apollo 11, when he was out in the sky, looked out and recited it. Our Lord, our God, how wondrous are the deeds of your hands. But Tilim Chet, uh, this Pasuk shows up near the beginning. Why do you mention man? Why are you paying attention to humans? Hashem your name is wondrous everywhere. That your glory should be in heaven. The same Pasuk is, is at the very end of the parak, it's a short parak, the end of the parak, leaving out the last line. In other words, the Malachim conceded in this kind of narrative that courses through the parak and said, your glory doesn't have to be kept in Shemaim. Moshe Rabbeinu won them over with the notion that the Torah should be given to them. I'm not concerned with all of that. I'm concerned with one thing. The notion that the Torah exists for essentially a thousand generations before it's given. 974 generations before the world is created in order to make a full even thousand by the time it's given. Now, this also fits with another Midrash that I didn't include in these sources, which I'm sure you're all familiar with, uh, Breshit Rabbah, near the beginning, that talks about HaKadosh Baruch Hu looking into the Torah as a deep Torah, as a blueprint for creating the world. And the idea that the Torah precedes the world, and the world is created with the Torah in mind, the Torah already being there. Um, now, however we're to understand this notion metaphysically, uh, and mystically, the uh, the assumption of this midrash is that the Torah predates the world. Now, let's think about what that statement can mean, even on its own terms. Can it mean that the rebellion of Korach precedes the world? 
I don't think you can make that case. Doesn't mean that um, that Chetam uh, Raglim precedes the world. It'd be very hard to make that case because then you run into either the problem of free will, in which case nobody in the Torah is actually doing anything because they're just puppets to a previously written script, or um, or it's saying that, well, all of this was foreknown, but not, uh, not foreordained, runs into se several other problems. The simpler way of explaining what this means is that the laws of the Torah, meaning not just the laws, the laws, the values, the instruction of the Torah predates the world. And that, of course, fits with the other Midrash about the world being created based on that blueprint. The notion is that there is an ideal world, so we say a platonic world, and that HaKadosh Baruch Hu created the real world to work with that. And that platonic world is embodied in the mitzvot of the Torah and the instructions of the Torah, which are not necessarily mitzvot, kiroshim tiyu, etc. And that that pre-existed. Now, if it pre-existed, but was only revealed to mankind in generation number 26, as we're calling it, which is Moshe Rabbeinu, what about before that? So what you have here in source two, because I wanted to give you context, is the end of the Mishnah. Now, in some Kitveya, there's some real confusion here. And we'll see it in a couple of days when we get to the last page of, of Kiddushin. In some Kitveyad of the Mishnah, the part that you're looking at that ends with Mishnah Yod Zion is the end of the Mishnah. That's the end of the parak. And Rambam in his parish of Mishnayot, because he, whatever you do with the Rambam, you can never ignore the Rambam. The Rambam in his parish of Mishnayot only explained up until Mishnah Yod Zion. As far as he was concerned, that was the end of the Masachat. Right now, you look and you see that in the shaded section, you have Rabbi Meir continuing, and then Rabbi Huda, and then Rabbi Nohorai, and I made that part large. Right, and uh, and you'll see several other Mishnah. We're going to look at these now, uh, but I did it because I want you to see context. The context in the middle of our parak, a section we're going to get to in uh, tomorrow or the day at the day afterwards uh, in the, in Adaf, which is about Yichud, and Yichud is a halachic issue, which is part of the miscellany that occupies the end of Kiddushin, Yichus and Nemanut, that's what we're dealing with now, and then Yichud, the laws of Yichud, and then in Halacha, Yodali continues that, Halacha Tedvav, or Mishnah Tedvav, um, this is based on the Kaufman manuscript, the finest manuscript of the Mishnah, talks about different professions a man or a woman should not be involved with because they will inevitably lead to Yichud, right? And then Rabbi Huda then talks about other professions a person should not be involved with, um, which will also lead to inappropriate uh, gender mixing, as it were. And then it goes on to talk about certain professions a person should avoid being involved with because of other problems, right? For instance, in Yod Gimel, which is, according to this, the end of the Mishnayot, Rameir says, a person should not teach his son to be a donkey driver, a camel driver, um, or a, uh, how do you call it, a, a barber, or a sailor, etc., etc., because these are all things that people get involved with are typically thieves. Then, suddenly, in these perhaps added Mishnayot, they're not just added out of nowhere, we'll see where they may come from, he says, a person should teach his son, his son, um, um, uh, to take whatever um, how do you call it? Whatever kind of trade he can get, and he should teach him a simple kind of trade that may, that people don't get upset out, etc. And then Rabbi Yehuda has the famous stay saying that most people of this profession are rishayim, etc. And of course, the tov There's a famous statement tov A lot of these statements are difficult to understand why they are the case, but not our problem right now. And then it moves to Rabbi Yehuda saying a person um, should teach uh, his son a simple living because your livelihood doesn't come from your, meaning your financial status doesn't come from your livelihood. It all comes from Hashemayim. And then we have this agadic statement in Mishnah Chaf, which is, have you ever seen a lion as a porter? All right. Or a... Um, 
um, or as a uh, a um, uh, fox as a storekeeper. In other words, you you haven't seen this, and these animals are all able to survive without having a livelihood, and they were created to serve me. I all the more so. Ella, what? I ruined my direction. In other words, the fact that we have to make a livelihood at all. We have to work for a living at all. In this agotic perception, uh, is part of the man's the fall of man, right? And and uh, that's where that goes. Now you understand what the spin is. The spin is it's starting to talk about livelihoods because certain trades you get involved with or certain professions you get involved with will maybe lead to yichud, which is the spring point, the springboard for this, and that leads to a discussion about livelihood, and that leads us to this. Mishnah that I put in bigger print because this is what in bigger font because that's the focus of our discussion. Amarlem Rabbi Nohurai. It's unclear whether the Rabbi Nohurai is another name for mayor or not. By the way, this contravenes what we learned in the middle of the first parak, which is that one of the obligations of a father towards his son is to teach him a trade. And if he doesn't teach him a trade, it's like he's teaching him to be a thief because he won't be able to make a living and he'll steal. So it's unclear how to take Rabbi Noah's statement. He says, I'm going to ignore all trades and only teach my son Torah. Because he'll get all this reward for learning Torah in this world and still all the reward for the learning will not be eaten away in Olam Haba. Typically, when you're making a living, this is before we had pensions, they only uh, work for you when you're young and able. If you get sick, or you have aches and pains, now you get old, you can't do your work anymore, you'll end up dying of starvation. It keeps you from evil when you're young, and it gives you hope when you're old. Benaruto quotes the pasuk from Yeshayahu, okay, good. So that's the notion, and that leads us to the following agadic observation, which is the, the, the core point, the springboard, if you will, of our shiur. Now notice the statement that this is riffing from is, that when Torah gives you energy and enthusiasm and a livelihood when you're young. Now, how does Torah give you livelihood? It's a big problem because you're not allowed to make a livelihood out of Torah. Uh, don't tell my students this, but they have a quiz tonight. And then one of the questions is, what did, because they have to read about different Farshim, what did Ramban do for a living? Right? And one of the choices is rabbi. And if they ever pick it, they'll get a zero because the answer is doctor. And then making a living means you actually... Um, how do you call it? Are uh, are getting paid for it, right? But no. But here, taking a different position, that this is the livelihood. The same thing shows up with Avraham. Doesn't mean Avraham didn't do things for a living. He did a lot. He was a merchant. He, he had sheep. He planted, etc. Shishimer. Look at the language. He guarded the Torah. He protected, or it means that he observed the Torah before it came into the world. Shinamar, and this is the pasuk we're going to really rip apart today, meaning we're going to investigate. And we'll look at the context of that pasuk. Because Avraham listened to my voice, says God, and he guarded my guarding and my mitzvot and my chukim and my torot. Okay? Now, by the way, in our, in the Vilna Shas, this doesn't show up. As the as the next part of the Mishnah, the Mishnah ends with Torah This is, of course, the other piece of the puzzle, because the notion, the argument is that if you study Torah in your youth and in your old age, you will be safeguarded to for a living. So here, Avraham studied well, observed the Torah in his youth and his old age, and now, sorry, in throughout his life. And now you see Avram was blessed in his youth and his old age. That's Avram's mission. By the way, Naruto is 75. So, And bracha in Tanakh, when Hashem blesses you, means wealth. And so that's how the, how the Mishnah reads. Parenthetically, before we get into it, you will see that the Tosefta, 
looks very similar. The Tosefta at the end of Kiddushin looks very similar. Rabbi Naharai is saying, I'm going to only teach my son Torah, etc. And it goes through the whole piece about how it protects you later on. And in Halacha Yod Zion, it says, you see that Abraham was blessed in his youth and blessed in his old age, right? And then a different discussion about Berachat Avraham Bakol, which may mean that that some of this Tosefta somehow got included into the end. This is not a unique phenomenon. Into the end and included as some and in and looking at as like some of the Mishnayot uh, at the end. Not our particular problem now because we're not doing a textual criticism piece uh, in this shiur. No, do we usually do that? Uh, but I do want to show you one more thing in the Tosefta. Um, um, we see that Hashem Beirachat Avram Bakol, and there's different opinions about what that means. Uh, that uh, Yishmael did tshuva, that Esav did not go sour until after Avram died, he didn't see that happen, that he had a girl named Bakol, he didn't have a girl at all, etc. And then take a look at the very end in Chafalot. God blessed him even more in his old age. Now, this is not in our Mishnah. Why did Hashem bless him so much in his old age? Now notice, here it's Shamar, here it's Asa. Lieberman maintains it's the same thing. He observed the Torah before it came. Now watch this. Not my Torah, but my Torot. And this drasha is meaning not only did he observe the Torah, but he it was re, what was revealed to him was the reasons and a close reading of the Torah, which we might call Midrash, sort of. Midrash halacha. That's where the Tosefta ends. Now, what we have is a, a statement about Avraham, and notice it's only about Avraham, which is that he, in some sense, observed the Torah before it was given. Now that leads to a famous Agadah that the, the time that the Malachim came to visit him, he ended up, we're going to see this, not, have, not, not having uh, Saran in the end didn't make any bread, and the reason is because it was Pesach and issues of Chametz. We'll see about how this plays out. However, that Pasuk, that we're going to look at in detail in a minute, is darshaned in an even more surprising way in the Bavli in Yoma. And we'll see a parallel Midrash in the Tanchuma, and then we'll get into the Pasuk. This is not just he knew the secrets, he understood it. Shamar, it's kiyem. Kiyem actually means to fulfill, which sounds like a much more loyal obeisance to the mitzvot, uh, that he kept the whole Torah. And it doesn't even add the comment before it was given, but we know it before it was given. Shinamar, Avraham Right? We'll see how that pasuk plays out. Maybe that means that Avram kept the mitzvot that had already been given to humanity. The answer is, because not just Shav mitzvot, Avram had an eighth mitzvot, Mila. So maybe when it says, Avraham kept all of my commands, etc., it means the Shav mitzvot and Mila. By the way, get ready, because you're going to see a whole score of Rishonim who think that's what it means. Imkain mitzvotai v'torotai lamali. As you'll see, the pasuk, we've already seen it, delineates sort of range of things that Avraham observed. And if all it's saying is that he kept the Sheva Mitzvot B'nai Noach, that all of humanity was commanded after the flood, and also Milah, then these words seem to be a little bit of overkill. So, Amaravi Temeravashi, Kiyem Avraham Avinu Afilu Eruvei Tavshilin. Now, this is a very difficult phrase. What's Eruv Tavshilin? Eruv Tavshilin is a mitzvah de Rabbanan that was instituted in order to make sure that you would not be preparing from, uh, from Yom Tov to Yom Tov by prohibiting you from preparing from Yom Tov to Shabbat when Yom Tov comes out on Friday. And so therefore what you do is on Thursday, or in our case in Chutzlarts, when Yom Tov is Thursday, Friday, in, 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 in Chutzlarts on Wednesday, you start cooking for Shabbat and then you add on. And that kind of memory thing makes sure that you don't violate the law of overly cooking on Yom Tov. However, that is all Durabanan. So to say that Avram Avinu maintained Eruv Tavshilin assumes several things. It assumes that Avram Avinu kept Yontif, which itself is going to be a problem, as we'll see in a minute. 
and to say that he observed Yom Tov to all the details and then accepted the rabbinic additions to Yom Tov, you could see is chronologically problematic. Now, what's the problem with saying Avram Avinu observed Yom Tov? Is that which Yom Tov are we talking about? Well, let's start with the most obvious one, Pesach. Why would it be strange to say that Avram Avinu observed Pesach? Because why is there Pesach? What's Pesach about? There's, there's no Mitzrayim. Yeah, right. It's kind of strange to say Avram Avinu observed Pesach. It's yet Mitzrayim. I have the same problem with Sukkot. Be kind of difficult. So you could say, okay, maybe Shavuot. Maybe. On the other hand, how is Shavuot presented in the Torah as part of a system of regalim, which have to do with Ali Allah Regal, but also are associated with the harvest process in Israel? Okay, that's a little bit difficult to say with regards to Avram. There's but neither a Mikdash nor is Avram himself actually even a farmer. It's kind of difficult. All right, we're going to see more about that. But the proof text that they're using to claim that Avram maintained a Ruve Tavshilin, Shinemar Torotai. The last word in the Pasuk is Vitorotai. Torah Achat, I mean, it's a plural. Achat Torah Shemichtav, Achat Torah Shemalpeh. And that means, of course, now the Torah Shemalpeh has been expanded from Masoretic teachings from Moshe to rabbinic additions. Uh, that were made at a later point as a as a as a gzerah. Now, in the midrash Tanchuma, at the beginning of Leich Lecha, you have a similar statement: Avram hayam midakdek al hamitzvot. He was very careful with the mitzvot, and you see at the end of that line, Afilu eruvetav shilin shamru vetoshal Avram. And Avram's house, they even kept eruvetav shilin. Seemed to keep the same pasuk, right? And the same idea. That's all as an introduction to um, the following statement. Uh, but, uh, you're so careful to keep my mitzvot you're going to live with leave them in other words watch how it works in this midrashic description Avram Avinu is already keeping the entire Torah even the Durabanans in Haran in the vicinity of and so Hashem says, I can't have somebody who's so firm living with the Avodah get up and leave. And that's the, the preface, shall we say, or the backstory to Lech Lecha. Very interesting. Now, here's the Pasuk that we're dealing with. Context. Um, Yitzchak, there's a famine in the land. Again. And Yitzchak gets up to go to Egypt. God stops him and says, you don't go down to Egypt, unlike what your father did. You don't go down to Egypt. I'm going to bless you. And I'm going to bless you on because of the merit of your father. Why? Because Abraham obeyed my voice. He guarded my mishmerit, the things, my, my guarding things. And that's the end of that piece of the story. That's the end of God's revelation to Yitzchak at that point. And so we look at him and we say, okay, God is saying himself. Avraham kept my mishmeret, my mitzvot, my chukot, and my torot. So we got to figure out what that means to see how is God praising Avraham for doing what. Now, if you take a look at the Rashi on the spot, he exactly follows the way the Midrash goes, mitzvotai and chukotai and torotai. And in chukotai, he interprets the way he does throughout Chumash, chukim being the way Rashi interprets things that are, that you know people try to tempt us not to do because they say they don't make sense. There's no good reason for them. Famous description of Chok, um, right? And then, He doesn't quote the thing about Erev Tavshilin, but the idea is that Avram maintained all of that. Okay? Well, we're going to see that Rashi is, for the most part, an outlier among the Rishonim in that approach, even though that's the Gemara. We'll see. But here's the problem. The problem is, when we say that Avraham maintained the entire Torah, what happens if we find Avram doing something which, at the face of it, seems to be a violation of the Torah? So there, I, I'm starting with one that's a little bit lighthearted, which shows up at the beginning of this week's parsha. I'm doing it because it's in this week's parsha. When the three visitors come to Avraham, um, what does he serve them? Milk and meat. Right. Right. So he takes cream, cream, and milk, and the meat that he prepared, and he puts it in front of them. 
Yeah, but Rashi says it was actually margarine, so it was okay. <laughs> <laughs> Good, right. And there was an okay PRP on it, right. Now, there are several ways to get around this problem. That's why I said it's a little bit of a light, lighthearted thing. How, how can you get around this without being a, being a problem? Love and then basah. What? Milk and then meat. Good. A. What else? They weren't Jewish. Exactly. Like, <laughs> Avram keeping the Torah would mean he's observing the Torah, but there's no reason for him to impose the laws of Kashrut on, what does Rashi say? They look like Arabs, like outsiders. Why would, he, why would that be an issue? Right? She's going to say, ah, oh, but Basar Bechalav is an Isor Hanah, and he'd be getting, getting Hanah from the fact that his guests are eating there, or in Maritayin, it would look like they think it's Mutter, etc. And you're going to start to put all sorts of layovers on it. The question is, now this is going to take us a, a field for a second, what is the Isor Doraita of Basar Bechalav? What sort of food is actually Isor Doraita because of Basar Bechalav? Doraita, because of Basar Bechalav. Uh, cooking it together. Meat, meat and milk cooked together. Right? Midoraita, you take milk and you have it even with the same meal at the same time as you're having meat. That's not a, that's not an isodoraita. However, the most we've shown him, by the way, ignore the issue of chamal chalav. Because it's like it's not it's not much of an issue. The Rambam, of course, ignores the issue because in the Rambam's world, remember this scene never happened, it's all a vision. The Bechor Short sends something very interesting here, right? Which is, okay, Bechor Short, Rabbi Yosef Bechor Short, by the way, very important Rishon to know, has only be, become popularized really of late, like in the last 30, 40 years. Uh, he was a student of Rabbi Anutam and is a, a piece of that school of Rashi that we adore so much and that we find different angles and wrinkles in. He says, exactly what one of you said, which is the order was milk and then meat. Now, again, it's Avram being the Shomer Mitzvot, and he would never serve, uh, he would never have milk right after meat, but he's serving it to these people. Okay, but the Chizkuni, Chizkia Bramanoach from Provence, 150 years later or so, has a different take on it, which is really helpful. He says, meaning within the world of halacha, our world of halacha, we don't have any real proof that you can have milk before meat, but not meat before milk. But there's an allusion to it, which is, meaning, he says that, that the, the issue of basar b'chalav is not what's at play here, but we have an illusion, meaning Avram's not Avram's not maintaining that law, and he's giving them chalav and, and basar. But a way to remember that you're allowed to have ice cream before you have a steak dinner, but after your steak dinner, you can't have ice cream, is the pasuk puts it in that order. It's a nice way to remember it. Okay. But let's look a little further. When Avram, in this week's parsha goes to Grar, and this is now nothing light, when Avram goes to Grar, what does he say about Sarah? Who is she? My sister. She says, it's his sister, right? Now, Avimelech takes her in. Hashem comes to him. Avimelech gets sick, etc. You all know the story. Avimelech confronts Avram and said, why did you lie? What did Avram say back? She really is my sister, but she is my father's daughter and not my mother's daughter. And I married her. Now, if we're to take Avram at face value, no reason not to, and therefore believe that Sarai is his don't say half because that's going to be misleading. His his uh, his paternal sister, and therefore within the context of Bnei Noach, it's mutar for them to to be married because after all, paternity is not a role in Bnei Noach. That's something we studied in the in the sugiot. Then that would be fine within the rules of Bnei Noach. But look at Vayikra. What about Ervatan? You're not allowed to have relations with either your paternal or maternal sister, which means that Avram, according to his own words, is in big violation of one of the Arayot. Very difficult. So what you could argue here is to say, when the Torah was given, the notion of paternity being a role was mitchadesh. But then you're going to have a big problem because then you're going to say that, aha, there's all sorts of things that were, in, that were initiated 
At the like we spoke about last week, the kiddushin creates this whole new idea of a relationship where paternity plays a role and the and the man's identity plays a role. But then you get in a problem because that means much of the Torah is not relevant till Matan Torah. And then what was it that Avram was maintaining? Now, of course, the much bigger question happens with Yaakov. Now, I'm making an assumption here, but it's an assumption that many are comfortable with, which is when we say that Avram kept the entire Torah, it means Avram means like Yaakov, Levi, Kahat, etc. Right? So who does Yaakov marry? Who does Yaakov want to marry? He wants to marry Rachel. Who ends up in his bed that first night? Somebody say it. Leah. 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 Right? And then, what does he do a week later? He marries Rachel. Yeah. Thus creating a disastrous home life, as we know. But, take a look at source 15, also from Parshat Arayot. You're not allowed to marry two sisters. Even, by the way, if you divorce one, you can't marry the other one, unless she dies. Right? So, how does Yaakov marry Rachel and Leah? So you have several explanations, and one of which is that Yaakov is not Avram. Maybe Avram maintained the entire Torah, but they weren't commanded, and Yaakov was bound by the laws of Neoch, but but perhaps not. But it's going to be difficult, as we'll see, at least several Rishonim will assume that Av Avram is maintaining a law. That means it's for generations. Um, parenthetically, I didn't put it in here, but parenthetically, to which animals does the rule of Gid HaNasheh apply? If you eat the gid on the of a horse, did you violate gid on the No. The answer is a machloket. It's a machloket, right? And the machloket is anchored in the following. It's a sugi in the seventh parak of Chulun. It's anchored in the following question. When was gid on given as a command? Rabbi Yehuda says gid on was given as a command at the spot when Yaakov was there. And guess what? Yaakov was allowed to eat pork roast and eat horses. And therefore... Gidon applies to all animals because he doesn't have any limitation what he can eat. Chachamim say the mitzvah of Gidon was given at Har Sinai, and therefore it only applies to animals that you're allowed to eat after Har Sinai. Right, that's the machloket. So, but that's really not a piece of this because that's assuming that they were only bound by the mitzvot that were given up until then. Shemitzvah Menoch, Milah, and and then the question is when is Gidon given? How about this? Yaakov builds four matzevot, the first one, famous one at the site that he names Beitel. And then there's, of course, the matzevah he builds with Lavan as part of the separation. Then the matzevah he builds again at Beitel. And then the matzevah he builds when Rachel dies, matzevot kurat Rachel. Four matzevot. Look at source 17. You're not allowed to build a matzevah. By the way, I got these questions straight from the Ramban. It's not, no chiddush. Now, Rashi on the spot, quoting the Sifri, says, God originally liked Matzevot. Meaning, a Matzevah was originally, it's a steel, S-T-E-L-E, it's a standing stone, a monument to God, God loved it. And then when the Kananim came along and turned it into idolatrous uses, God then rejected it. Which now means something that we that in our calculus is going to change everything, because it means that there are mitzvot that there there are practices that their meaning and therefore their halachic impact changed with time because of external things like the way that nations dealt with it. If a nation suddenly starts worshiping this thing, then God says, "From now on, I don't want you to do this anymore." Listen to the words. From now on means these are not eternal mitzvot, these are mitzvot that changed. That's what Rashi here says. Originally, God liked matzevot when the, the nations used them for Avodah God said, now I reject them. Which may mean that Yaakov was doing everything right, but you understand how that statement puts a huge hole into the entire edifice? Because if we're going to say that mitzvot have changed because of things that happened, then we're of course going to turn around and say, up until now, the 15th of Nisan was not a special day at all. We left Mitzvahim, it became a special day because of an event that happened. And then all sorts of other things that become Zecha Litziat Mitzvahim, which means they don't have any significance before that. Things have changed. Suddenly, the month of ER is filled with Mitzvot that didn't exist before because of the Omer, because there's a Mitzvah to count the Omer. But we didn't have that before. 
You understand? So that's going to put a, a shot into this whole thing. One more challenge to the whole piece is this. Moshe, who's Moshe's father? You know it from the song. Am Amram. Right. Ben Amram is Moshe, right? Amram. Who's Moshe's mother? Yochevet. Who's Yochevet to Amram? She's his aunt. Amram's father's sister. Remember, Amram is Levi's grandson, right? Amram mm. is Kat's son. Kat is one of Levi's sons. And Levi has a daughter named Yochevet. There's Kahat, Gershon, Mirari, and Yochevet. Maybe some others. And Amram marries his aunt. It says it right there in source 19 in the little genealogy in Parshat Vaera. You couldn't have it clearer than that. And yet, what does it say in the Arayot? Now, these are some of the examples of behavior that we find in the pre-Matan Torah chapters, which is essentially, um, really, if you want to get technical about it, it's 70 chapters. It's 50 chapters of Bereshit and another, let's say, 19 or, or so of, of Shmot. But that's unfair, because the first 11 chapters of Rashid we're not going to consider. And we're really not going to consider anything until Avram comes along. Okay, so there's 39 chapters, if you will, of Rashid, and another 10 chapters or so, about 50 chapters total of narrative. But you find people who are heroes to us, who are part of our Mesorah, who are doing things that violate the later law of the Torah. How do we explain that? Okay, so take a look what... And we're going to do this very quickly. It, what the Rashbam says, what the Ibn Ezra says, what the Bechor Shor says about that pasuk, Ekev Asher Shema Avraham Mikoli. Remember what Rashi said. This refers to the whole Torah. The Gemara in, in, in Yoma, the Midrash Tanchuma. Right. Take a look at the Rashbam says. Remember what the Gemara said? Maybe it means Shav Mitzvot. No, it doesn't mean that. Ekev Asher Shema Avraham Mikoli. Al Ha'akeda. Vayishmor Mishmarti. Gon Mila. Mitzvotai can go on mitzvot shmonei yamim to do brit milah on the eighth day, right? And then he says the fi karpshuto. What's chukotai v'toratai? Call hamitzvot hanikarot, meaning things that are obvious. Go on gezel va'arayod v'chimud mamon v'dinin v'chasat orchim. Notice how the Rashbam makes this picture of the mitzvot that any upright person is going to do: not stealing, sexual modesty and sexual propriety, not coveting making sure to have a proper justice system, welcoming guests. They all were things that were practiced before Matan Torah. But at Matan Torah, what happened? Those things were repeated and then given formally as a brit, whereas beforehand, it's something that every upright person did. We understand that. The Ibn Ezra says, what's Mishmarti? Everything you're supposed to keep is mishmarti. What what are mitzvot? Lech lecha. God told him to go. Chukot is chukot Hashem, which is to be to uh, should we say imatio uh, day to follow to imitate God, right? What's torot? Brit milah. Now everybody's going to take these words and pull them differently, but what they're all coming up with is that these refer to things that were either part of just a proper society or things that explicitly had been commanded before and not Eruv Tzilin and not Pesach, etc. All right, Umitzvotai, the Bechor Shor says, Shitziviti Allah Lefisha, what I commanded him, like Lech Lecha and Akedat Yitzchak, meaning things that he was commanded. Okay. If we do nothing else, I got to show you these two makorot. They are just so delightful. One of them is the Ramban, and then I'll show you something that's going to be the earliest post-Tanakh makor we could look at on this. The Ramban quotes Rashi, and he says this is all based on the idea that the, uh, that Avraham kept the Torah before it was was, observed, was uh, given. And then V'yeshli Shol. And he asks all the questions. So I got the questions from. How could Yaakov marry two sisters? How could Yaakov put up Matzevot? How could Amram marry his aunt? Right? And then Moshe put up Matzevot. He has other questions. Right? And then he says the following. It's a long Ramban, but I want to show you the, his own approach. Now, we have to remember the Ramban, Moshe ben Nachman, is in one perspective 
the biggest, I don't want to use any, any anachronistic terms. The Ramban is, from one perspective, the biggest Ohev Eretz Yisrael among the Rishonim. Not only is the Ramban famous for disagreeing with the Rambam and saying that there is a mitzvah in all generations to settle the land, to uproot others from the land to settle it, and not to leave it barren, but to settle it. That's the Ramban. Not only did the Ramban, when he got thrown out of Spain after the disputation, make Aliyah and spend his last years in Eretz Israel and establish a Beit Midrash in Akko, etc. Not only all of those things, but in his both halachic and meta-halachic and exegetic writings, Eretz Israel, in both practical and mystical ways, plays a central role. Watch this. This is what I think, not only I'm saying what I think is, I think this is what the rabbis meant. This is the Ramban's take. Avram studied the entire Torah prophetically. And he engaged himself in the study of the reasons of the mitzvot and the secrets of the mitzvot. He observed the whole thing. As somebody who's not commanded, but he does it anyways. Now, what that means is, the way the Ramban is, is kind of making it a little more real, if you will, is that Avram Avinu had a prophetic vision where he understood the entire Torah. And then he said, this is a way that I want to live my life. So I'm going to live my life in accord with this. I'm going to have Shabbat, Chagim, etc. And I don't Chagim come before the events. We'll see about that. And, but he did it as, not as I'm bound by these things, which means there's no berchat mitzvot. He can't say, there's no such thing. But it means that he would be doing it as somebody who has discovered a great truth and wants to live by that truth on his own without having recourse to a commandedness about it. That's his first take. And Avraham maintained these mitzvot only in Eretz Yisrael. Therefore, Yaakov, following that tradition, when he was outside of Israel, married two sisters. That's, by the way, the Ramban's take on why Rachel had to die as soon as they got to the land. It wasn't as soon as, but when they got to the land and be buried there because Rachel's the problem sister. She's the second one, as it were. Amram. Amram married in And this is something you have to look in the Ramban in Vayikra Yodchet Pasuk Chafei, long Ramban about the special association of all mitzvot with Eretz Yisrael, and taking a piece from the famous Sifri that that observing mitzvot in Chutzlarts is basically staying in practice. Very big statement. Even though we're obligated to keep Shabbat and Arayot and everything else everywhere in the world, and that's the comment that I point you to. And I'll talk about it later. And then he goes now. He says another thing here, because Yaakov built Matzevot in Israel. And if a Matzevah is Asur, how does that work? And your theory about Chutzlar doesn't help. And he's not ready to say, Yaakov didn't observe, but Avram observed, because his assumption is if Avram observed, it's sort of Yitzchak, sort of Yaakov. So watch what he says. Meaning the prohibition of Matzevah was an, an innovation of some point. Now, by the way, the way you have to understand now, though, it's an innovation on a metaphysical level. It's not that God suddenly says, okay, from now on, I don't like Matzevah. It's like the, the eternal truth of Torah has shifted and Matzevah is out. Like we saw, that after it was beloved, God um, God hated it. And he goes on and continues, but this is the approach to the Ramban. God hated what? Now what? What did God hate? Okay. He said God had hated it. The, the Matseva, after it was oh, beloved. Okay. Oh, okay. And since okay. They, they used it for Rodazora, God rejected it. Right? Which itself is, is an interesting question about how that happens. I said, like, God has something that he loves and everything else, and other people use it for Rodazara, and now he doesn't like it anymore. That's also kind of anthropopathic and a little bit difficult. But I just want to point out, the Ramban is tackling this issue head-on. And he's got his own approach to it, which is not seamless. 
And that's why he has to dance a little bit with the issue of the Matseva. But it is an approach to the whole issue of mitzvot before Matan Torah. Um, if you take a look at the Lekach Tov, the Midrash Lekach Tov is really a very early uh, Parshan, Italy, 10th century, perhaps 11th century. It was 11th century. Um, and in it, he goes through mitzvotai, chukotai, v'torotai, and does exactly what the other Rishonim that we saw did, which is to interpret them only in terms of either mitzvot that Avram was explicitly given, like lech lecha and the akedah and milah, or things that an upright person would do. Take a look at the end, davar acher v'torotai, torat ha-tzivuyim v'torat ha-da'at. Meaning things that a, an upright person would reasonably come to that conclusion on his own, but not because of any commandness or access to secret information. Now, the Radax is something here which, which I wanted to get to and then show you this last source. The Radak, David Kimchi, 13th century Provence. Um, by the way, the Kimchi family was prodigious in, uh, in, their, in, in their range of their output. Uh, they were originally from Spain and then moved away because things got difficult. They moved to Provence, but they brought a lot of the Spanish influence into France. And there's a famous saying, uh, you know, the famous Mishnah Avot, Im ein kemach in Torah. You've heard that before. So the saying among Parshanim is, Im ein kimchi in Torah, right? Without the kimchi family, we would be lost. Uh, take a look at the Radak here. The Radak quotes the Midrash about uh, Avram keeping all these mitzvot, including. Uh, including Erev Tavshin. Look what he says at the end. It's brilliant. It is brilliant. I saw this, I almost cried. It was so beautiful. Vamru, the last line. Lomar, it says, because the line is Mishmarti, my Mishmerit. Not because of Torotai, but Mishmarti. What's Erev Tavshilin? It's a protection against violating Yom Tov. Right? Now, You know he, the way he explains the Gemara that says Erev Tavshilin? It doesn't mean Avram kept Erev Tavshilin, because that would be strange. He doesn't have Yom Tov yet. It means that just like Erev Tavshilin is a protection of, of mitzvot, Avram set up protections for his mitzvot. So if HaKadosh Baruch Hu said, do Brit Milab, Avram Avinu did it early in the morning. And if uh, and if uh, Kodesh Baruch Hu said, Avram got up quickly and went, right, like he does with the Akedah. You know, he didn't just do it, he did it with extra energy and also with, with protections that he set up around these mitzvot. Okay. Um, now we're going to talk off book for about three seconds, and I'm going to show you something that you'll find startling. We, in our minds, in our history of Jewish literature minds, we have a gap of approximately 400 years. Not really 400 years, but that's the way we think of it. Because if you were to ask the average person, when is the period of Tanakh? They'll say it goes back to Breshit on one level, but as far as a, a text, it goes back to Moshe Rabbeinu. Up until when? How late would you make the period of the Tanakh? So most people would put it in around the third, fourth century BCE or so, at the very latest. Right? And maybe even later that, but right now we'll say even fifth century BCE. All right, uh, Ezra and Nehemiah's fifth century BCE. Uh, you know, Daniel is placed in the sixth century BCE. That's how the story is presented, et cetera. That's the um, that's the time period we would think. And the next piece of literature that we think about is the Mishnah. And the Mishnah, of course, is 3rd century CE. So it's a big gap of time. So do you think for a minute that Jews living in Babel and living in Eretz Yisrael, living in Greece, living in Egypt, do you think they were all just sitting around doing nothing for 500 years? Not a chance. There's lots and lots and lots of Jewish literature that was produced by religious Jews, loyal Jews, but Jews that were members of different groups that had different approaches to understanding Judaism. Um, during that period, and we refer to that generally as, during much of this literature, as sectarian literature, literature that was produced by different sects of Judaism. And um, nearly all of this literature, uh, we refer to also as Bayit Cheney literature, because it was produced chiefly during the period of the Second Temple, 
Once we get to the last century of the Second Temple, we're already talking about Mishnaic material. We have Mishnaiot to go back to the time of Hillel, and that's approximately the year 30 BCE. And from then on, we're talking about literature that we're very familiar with, meaning we have lots of access to. But that literature that was produced during that time includes a wide range of books, including um, ap apocalyptic visions, including codes, including narratives, including romance, including midrashim, including all sorts of things. Much of it was found in fragments in the famous find of the Dead Sea Scrolls. And, um, and much of this literature was found in all sorts of places, uh, including one book we're going to look at right now that was actually only found in, in Gez, the, the language of the high language of Ethiopian, uh, of Ethiopia. Uh, but these are Jewish texts. And we, Chazal, were familiar with these texts, and Chazal voted them out of Tanakh. So they're not in Tanakh. And they voted them, they, they uh, uh, relegated them to a status that we call Geniza. Geniza is not what we think of, which is when you bury a holy text but rather something banned and buried away. And it took on the Greek word apocrypha, which means hidden. And so in the, and the, the Christians really adored the apocrypha, and in a Catholic Bible, the apocrypha, apocryphal books are included. And, uh, and Jews became aware in the pre-modern period of it because of contact with Christians, realized these are Jewish texts written by Jews, and so starting in about the 17th century, because it's only discovered really in the 16th century, Jews started translating them back into Hebrew. So what we have is Hebrew, many of these texts were originally written in Hebrew, then translated into Greek, um, and then, or other languages, and then translated back into Hebrew in the modern period, so that we now have them, but it's not the original text. Um, one of the central books of this whole collection is a book called Sefer Hayovlim. So a quick word about Sefer Hayovlim. Kanavarman did a beautiful work of, a number of years ago of a critical edition of Sefer Ayuvlim. I have it here on my shelf. The Book of Jubilees, which I, this book was found in in uh, in the text that we have of it, was found in Gez, in, in the Ethiopian language. Um, the Book of Jubilees is exactly what it sounds like. It is a chronography. It retells the story from creation all the way to Mamad Harsinai, from the perspective of a, a calendar, so that in the fourth Yovel, in the third week, week means series of seven years, in the third year, in the second month, on the first day, this happened. And so all the events that happen in the Torah up until the middle of Shemot are suddenly placed into a chronological framework, which they are not in the Torah. It becomes sort of the model for Seder Olam, the Midrash of Rabbi Yossi, which is also chronography. And you can see here, right here in the beginning, the first source that we have, which is the beginning of chapter 15 of Jubilees, and in the fifth year of the fourth week of this Jubilee. Week means series of Shemitot, right? So it's the this particular Yovel that they're talking about. It's the fourth week, which means between year 21 and 28. And it's the fifth year, so it's year 26 of that Yovel, in the third month, in the middle of the month, etc. Now, Sefer Yovlim, according to Sefer Yovlim, was revealed to Moshe Rabbeinu by an angel on Har Sinai. And so therefore, Sefer Yovlim only includes events up to and including Mamad Har Sinai, including Yitzhak Mitzrayim, etc. Now, Sefer Yovlim was composed in the 3rd century BCE, so it includes lots and lots of material from later than that in the Torah kind of infused in, and it includes lots of Midrashim, which were the common Midrashim of the day, uh, that are rewritten into the text. Take a look what it says here in chapter 15. And in the fifth year of the fourth week of this jubilee, in the third month, in the middle of the month, Avram celebrated the feast of the first fruits of the grain harvest. You know what that is? That's Shavuot. Now, why is he celebrating it on the 15th of Sivan? Because in the sectarian calendar that we unearthed in cave 11, sorry, cave 4, uh, in Mixat Masei Torah, Shavuot is on the 15th of Sivan in their calendar. Right, Sphira starts on the 26th of Nisan, which is a Sunday. Seven weeks later on a Sunday, the 15th of Sivan, is Shavuot, and that's part of that whole Mokhavara uh, Shabbat thing. And then you under, you see that he uh, that uh, that he brings all of these other offerings that fit Shavuot. He's celebrating Shavuot, 
And then you see, this is the day that Hashem appears to him and changes his name to Avram and gives Brit Milah. Brit, Shavuot, you understand the connection now? This, by the way, may be the earliest place in our history that Shavuot becomes connected with Matan Torah, because again, the issue of Brit. Um, if you see now, later on in, in, uh, in 16, uh, in chapter 16, you see him celebrating Sukkot and all the korbanot that he brings on Sukkot. Um, then, later on in, in Yovlim, in chapter 34, it tells the story of the sale of Yosef. And on what day did, did they send the coat to Yaakov and Yaakov received it and thought that Yosef was dead? The 10th and 7th month. What's that? Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur. Right? And he mourned, etc. Now keep reading. Um, and Bilhah heard that Yosef died and she and she died of sadness. Dina also, same thing. Right? And now, for this reason, look at line 23. It's wild. For this reason, it is ordained for the children of Israel that they should afflict themselves on the 10th and 7th month on the day that the news which made him weep for Yosef came to Jacob, his father. Now notice how the Sefer Yovlim is working. It's operating with this Midrashic notion, and this is the earliest place we see it in Yovlim, this Midrashic notion that Avraham was observing the mitzvot, including festivals which celebrate Yitzhak Mitzrayim. Think about that. And that the, the, that the mitzvot especially Yom Kippur, is given as a result of the behavior of the brothers towards Yosef. By the way, an interesting footnote is one of the central um, piyutim that we recite in the Avodah is Ela Ezkara, with the martyrology of the Ten Martyrs, and the, the, the um, backstory of that in most of the Midrashim, and in actually all the Midrashim, is the sale of Yosef. And the, the ten have to die because the ten brothers, etc. Okay, so you understand that we have this notion all the way back that Avram is celebrating the Chagim. Now, interesting enough, when you take a look in our parsha, says that Avraham goes to uh, to Sarah to the tent and says, "Prepare loaves along with the food," but uh, in the end, he doesn't serve them loaves. Look at at uh, the midrash rabbi here. It was just before Pesach, right? And then in association with the man. Look at the Midrash Agadah here, says, In other words, he told her to make the cakes very quickly so they wouldn't rise, so they would not be chametz. Again, this notion of Avraham maintaining even the Chagim that are themselves a zecher to something that hasn't yet happened, it's going to happen to his kids. In the case of Lot, Lot Dafka makes matzot, and what does Rashi on the spot say? Pesach even Lot celebrating Pesach in stone. Now, um, this is a very difficult notion on a on a practical, meaning to see in an actual level, Avram celebrating Yitzhak Mitzrayim, etc., very difficult. The Beit HaLevi, the Beit HaLevi, or most com more commonly the Beit HaLevi, which was the Rav's great-grandfather, who's named for him, Yosheber Soloveitchik, um, in his commentary on the Torah, actually makes the following comment, in which he turns things around in an interesting way. He says, don't think that we celebrate Pesach on the 15th of Nisan, because on that night we were taken out of Mitzrayim. We were taken out of Mitzrayim because we celebrate Pesach. And that's why he explains the very strange pasuk, In other words, Avram Avinu was keeping Pesach on the 15th, and because of that schut, we have this mitzvah in our family, therefore we're redeemed on that day. And he says, all the mitzvot work that way, that they're that they're not a commemoration of something, but rather that event happened as a result of the mitzvot. This, of course, on a shot level, is very difficult to, to, to accept, but it's struggling with this same broad notion that appears in early Midrashic literature, we see it in Jubilees, that appears in throughout Midrashic literature in the Gemara and in the Midrashim, but but interestingly enough, the overwhelming majority of the Rishonim that we saw at least didn't go in that direction at all. And they said, What did Avram keep? He kept the mitzvot he was given, and perhaps he had he intuited certain kind of values and proper behaviors, but not ritual mitzvot that were not yet given. But nonetheless, there's this midrashic direction which ultimately finds its way into this Mishnah at the end of Kiddushin, 
that Avram Avinu shimerat haTorah shelobat leolam, based on the pasuk that we dealt with, Ekev Hashem Shema Avraham Mikuli, Aishmor Mishmarti, Mitzvotai, Chukotai, VeToratai, and that's a very nice way for us to end our study of Masachet Kiddushin. And Mir Hashem, next week we're going to have an opening shiur on Masachet Bavakam. In the meantime, I think there's discussions afoot about how to make a proper siyum. So we'll find out about that and send it out in the WhatsApp group. Um, was, uh, in the meantime, I wish everybody a great week and Shakoach on a successful completion in a few days of Masachet Kiddushin. Hadran Allah, Asar Yuchsin, Hadran Allah, Masachet Kiddushin.